settled and strong in his position. So number one, remember God is on the throne. Number two, God is still there. Number three, God is good. Remember God is good. He's always good. Nahum chapter one, verse seven, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Psalm 103 verse 13 tells us clearly that God is good and God is good. So one, God is on the throne. (coughs) Two, God is still there. Three, God is good. Number four, God never makes a mistake. God never makes a mistake. He's incapable. He is incapable of making a mistake. Everything he does is for his own good pleasure. One time a lady said to me, she said, the way you preach about God is you make him almost like he's an egocentric. And I thought about it and I thought, he is the universal egocentric. It all is about him. Everything's about him. And so God never makes mistakes. Number five, God always has comfort for you. God always has comfort for you. Aren't you glad to know that? And I say that in that specific way because whatever you're going through, God has the very comfort you need for your situation. Uh, Pastor mentioned my son who was killed in a car accident. He was 18 years old, five months and nine days. That's how long he lived. Uh, You say, why would you know how many days he lived? When you lose a child, you kind of keep those kind of charts and... uh, Eric was a good boy, and uh, uh, I remember after we lost him, uh, he was killed, and we buried him, and we tried to recover. I did my best to find somebody who lost a son who lived 18 years, five months, and nine days. Isn't that odd? I'd meet people, and here was one that was two, and one was uh, 29, and I remember I was in uh, um, uh, New Britain, Connecticut. I went to a meeting, and a lady came up to me, and she said, I heard you lost a son. I said, I did. And she said, I did too. And first thing I did was I said, how old was he? And she told me, and he was almost 30. And, um, and then she told me, she said he committed suicide. And instantly I realized, quit looking for something that's vain. He gives the comfort. I thought, my soul, can you imagine losing a child to suicide? And you know what? Even there, God has comfort. Aren't you glad to know that? There's nothing you're gonna go through that God doesn't give you the very comfort you need. Isn't that good? He always takes care of us. And then, uh, by the way, here's a scripture, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 on that. You might want to jot that down. God always gives comfort for your need. Number six, God's promises are reliable. God's promises are reliable. Philippians 4, 8. Philippians 4, 8. God's promises are reliable. You know something? You can swing from here to eternity on God's promises and never fall. He is good. Amen. I want you to go in your Bibles now, please, to the book of Matthew. Uh, Pastor, thank you for the high privilege to preach in your pulpit on Easter Sunday. Uh, I know that's uh, probably the high watermark of all the 52 Sundays of the year, uh, Easter Sunday, and it is a great honor uh, to be here. I'm glad I'm not preaching some uh, outfit either like you had last year a guy in some kind of outfit. I'm preaching in a man's suit, amen, not some, some skirt. I'm just kidding. Last year you had the uh, Brother Pitts, I believe his name, here. Uh, Matthew 28, if you're able to, would you kindly stand with me in uh, reading the scriptures 
these wonderful, happy, thrilling, wonderful, miraculous verses in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 15. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, <coughs> Fear not ye, for, ye, for I know <coughs> that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly, and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, all hail. And they came and beheld and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then said Jesus unto them, be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee. And there shall they see me. <coughs> <clears throat> I have to pause there <clears throat> and point out that here Jesus says, go tell my brethren. What a wonderful statement. And, and let me just tell you this. He called them brethren, although all of them forsook him. All of them left him at the cross by himself. He said, go tell my brethren. That is a precious statement there. Let me go on with the reading. Now, verse 11 when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed to the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. We slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I must close the reading, uh, but I want to tell you this morning, I want to preach a message about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the question that I want to deal with is the question, what does the resurrection prove? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for the privilege to be here. Thank you for the singing. I, I think of that, that, that hymn, the last one we sang, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Oh Lord, thank you that through life's hardships and through life's great valleys and yea, the great mountaintops of our experience, we thank you that, Lord, you have been our gentle shepherd. You've guided us safely on. And Lord, as we look back into the Bible record today, and we see this grand and glorious event in the, in the, this, the life of Christ, we thank you for the glorious resurrection. And we thank you that it proves some things to us today. And we ask it that, Lord, you would bless us and meet with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Simon Greenleaf 
He was one of the founders of the Harvard Law School. He lived until 1853, and he was what we would call one of the Victorian statesmen of our great republic. He authored the authoritative three-volume text called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. It was written in 1842. It is even to this day considered the greatest single authority on evidence in the entire literature of legal procedure. This man was a brilliant mind. He was all about uh, evidence. Greenleaf literally wrote the rules of evidence for the United States legal system. He was certainly a man who knew how to weigh the facts, but he was an atheist. He was an atheist until he accepted the challenge by his students to investigate the cause for Christ's resurrection. Uh, pardon me, the case for Christ's resurrection. And after personally collecting and examining the evidence based on rules of evidence that he, by the way, established in the legal order, Greenleaf himself became a Christian. And he wrote the classic called Testimony of the Evangelist. Let me read you an excerpt from his, his uh, treatise, Testimony of the Evangelist. He said, quote, let the gospel's testimony be sifted as it were given in a court of justice on the side of the adverse party, the witness being subjected to a rigorous cross-examination. The result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. In other words, he's saying, with all that legal jargon, he says, the gospel's are reliable evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a testimony. Another, if you allow me to just give you these uh, secular evidences of the resurrection. Uh, a man by the name of Lionel Luckhoo, L-U-C-K-H-O-O. -O. Can you imagine having that name as a boy? Luckhoo. Uh, Sir Lionel Luckhoo, he died in 1997. He's considered one of the greatest lawyers in British history. Think about this. He is in the Guinness's Book of World Records as the most successful advocate of all time. He won 245 consecutive murder acquittals and he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth twice. This guy was a brilliant legal mind. He declared, let me read what he said. I humbly add I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer appearing in many parts of the world and am still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in general trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That's a tremendous statement from a secular mind. And then one more. This would be one who was a participant in the fake news. His name is Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a Yale-educated, award-winning journalist of the Chicago Tribune. <laughs> uh, today, uh, uh, certainly the Tribune is known for its fake news. But he, as an atheist, decided to compile a legal case against Jesus Christ and prove him to be a fraud by weight of evidence. 
as legal editor of the Tribune, Strobel's area of expertise was courtroom analysis. To make his case against Christ, Strobel cross-examined a number of Christian authorities, recognized experts in their own fields of study, including PhDs from such prestigious academic centers as Cambridge, Princeton, and Brandeis University. He conducted his examination with no religious bias other than his predisposition toward atheism. Remarkably, after compiling and critically examining the evidence for himself, Strobel also became a Christian. It's amazing. Stunned by his findings, he organized the evidence into a book entitled The Case for Christ. If you've never read that book, it is a tremendous book, uh, which won the Gold Medallion Book Award for Excellence, I believe, in, uh, uh, in 96. Uh, another, one more, just one more. These are just, to me, they fire me up. By the way, as a Christian, all I need is this evidence. Amen. But it is compelling to see how this truth sets people free, including these of what we would call higher learning. Uh, another attorney, Francis Lamb, L-A-M-B, of Madison, Wisconsin, also con convinced the resurrection was easily refuted. He subjected the New Testament evidence to jural tests. After 284 pages of testimony and investigation, he affirmed, quote, Tested by the standards and ordeals of jural science, by which questions of facts are ascertained and demonstrated in contested questions of right between man and woman, uh, between man and man in courts of justice, comma, the resurrection of Jesus Christ stands as a demonstrated fact. His resurrection, what does it prove to us today? What is the significance of the resurrection for you and me today, let me say, first of all, the resurrection proves that the word of Christ is reliable. In our text, look at verse number six. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. As he said. I'll say it again. The resurrection proves the word of Christ is reliable. Ladies and gentlemen, he said of himself that he would be crucified. He said of himself that he would die on a cross and raise from the dead. His word is reliable. Go back, please, to Matthew 16 and verse number 21. Uh, actually, the very first place where Jesus begins to uh, uh, explain and detail his forthcoming sacrifice. Uh, certainly, it wasn't a post-thought. It wasn't a, uh, a continued thought. It was established ever before there was a world. God in his infinite mind knew that there'd have to be a redeemer to come for the sins of man. It isn't that Jesus concocted this thing, but he here he explains to his apostles, verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Oh, his word, he stated it clearly. You say, why would we need to trust the words of Christ? Well, Oh, at Jesus' resurrection, that first Sunday night, uh, the apostles and disciples, rather, were gathered in the upper room. One was missing, Thomas. Oh, Judas was missing as well. He was already in hell. That son of perdition. 
He went out and hanged himself in guilt, but he didn't repent. And he went to hell. And Judas burns in hell today. You say, well, he deserves to burn in hell. We all do. And I want to tell you something, except you come under the blood of Jesus Christ, you too will go to hell. Had a lady say to me one time, she said, you sound like you're saying that a woman like Mother Teresa would go to hell with Judas Iscariot. It doesn't sound fair. I said, fair, nothing. We're all under condemnation. I do believe there are degrees of punishment in hell, just like there are rewards in heaven. But I want to tell you something. Judas went to hell because he rejected the Son of God and he went a step further and betrayed the Son of God. And Jesus himself said it had been better that he'd not been born. No doubt there's a hot spot in hell for Judas, but there's a spot in hell for any person that would die outside of the blood of Jesus Christ. But Jesus he said here in verse 21, he said, I will be killed and raised the third day. And Thomas wasn't in that meeting that first Sunday night when Jesus showed up. And it seems to me a bit curious. Why wasn't Thomas there? Because he didn't trust the words of the Savior. Jesus said, I will rise again. Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest proof of the resurrection is that Jesus said of himself that he will raise from the dead. And his word is reliable. He said he'd rise, uh, raise, rise from the dead. And that resurrection proves his word. Go to John 6, 63, if you would, please. John 6 and 63. And if you uh, uh, want to jot these verses down, they'll be helpful to you. John 6, 63. It says, it, it, it is a spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you. They are spirit and they are life. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty, words of Christ, of, of faith and duty. Beautiful words. Thank God for the words of Christ. If you took all the record, rec recorded words of Jesus spoken here in this life, it would fill only a small tract, a small pamphlet. If you took your Bible and if you had a red letter, and I don't, but if you had a red letter, uh, there you have a red letter, uh, there'd be just a, a small amount of words recorded, really, in the Bible. But oh, those words are life. Those words are great life. And thank God, uh, uh, we, we have life. But you know, it's interesting, in John 6 and 64 the very next verses, but there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and the who should betray him. Some believe and some don't. I choose to believe the words of Christ. Say amen right there. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have a reliable book with reliable words amen. that give life. Amen. The entrance of thy word giveth light. Amen. Oh, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus said in John 15, 3, he said, you're clean through the words which I have spoken unto you. Oh, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They know the words of the shepherd. Have you heard his voice? Has he called you? Thank God for the words of Christ. Now just consider that courtroom drama. See the accused, see the judge, see the attorneys. And as the trial closes, the judge renders the verdict and he looks at the accused and he says, your word is reliable. And Jesus' word is reliable. His words are true. 
His verdict on us all is also true. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It doesn't matter how sincere you are, how how well-natured you are. It does not matter what deeds of, of kindness and benevolence. All those things are not relating to eternal life. But Jesus said, He that hath the Son hath life. John 3, 18, He that believeth on the Son is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. The resurrection proves what Jesus said about salvation is salvation. Hallelujah for that. In Pennsylvania, during, uh, in the year 1929, a man by the name of George Wilson was convicted of mail robbery uh, and, and uh, resulting in murder. He was sentenced to death. Later, he was pardoned by President Andrew Jackson, but Wilson refused the pardon. Confusion reigned among all who were concerned about the case. Nothing like this had ever happened before. How could a man be pardoned and him refuse the pardon? What were they to do with this man? How would they treat it, legally speaking? And finally, the great Chief Justice John Marshall, he ruled, and here's what he ruled, a pardon is a paper the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the parties implicated. It is hardly to be supposed that one under the sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon. But if it is refused, it is no pardon. And George Wilson must hang. A few weeks went by. Wilson walked 13 steps up to the gallows. A black hood was placed over his head, a rope about his neck. Like a bolt of lightning, his body fell six to eight feet below the deck. His head jerked, his neck snapped. A few convulsive moments ensued, and then all was quiet. Wilson was dead. Why? Because he had to die? No, but because he refused the pardon. And I say to you, that moment that you accepted Jesus Christ's pardon, God took you from hell to heaven. Just as sure as you're breathing God's air right now, you will wake up on the other side breathing celestial air because you accepted the pardon. Hallelujah for the reliable words of Christ. A lady was dying. Family gathered around and one scoffer. The scoffer looked at the aged dying woman and said, Auntie, you've put your faith in the words of Jesus Christ. What are you going to think when you pass if he was wrong? And she said, Sonny, he'd have a whole lot more to lose than me. <laughs> Thank God for his reliable words. But let me say second, the resurrection proves the work of Christ is remarkable. The work of Christ is remarkable. We saw in the first case, as he said, that means his word is reliable. But here in our text, verses 11 through 17, we read those words and we read about these who said, uh, hey, you say that his body was stolen and, uh, <coughs> and let's, let's, uh, let's uh, do our best to cover this thing up. Let's not let them think uh, that uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Go also to chapter 27 and look at verse 62. Now the, the next day, the following day, the pe preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, Matthew 27, verse 63, saying, Sir, 
we remember that that deceiver said, that's talking about Jesus. We remember that, that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days, I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. And so they went, made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now you think about what happened with the body of Christ. He's in the tomb. And these scribes and Pharisees, and let me say this to you, all of this, all of this, the impetus of this was from the Jews. And they didn't want this man to raise from the dead because if he did, if he did, he is no doubt the Messiah. And they wanted to make sure this wouldn't happen. And so they set up a mock trial. A betrayal within the ranks of the 12 took place. This is about his death. The bondage where he was taken as a prisoner by a band of soldiers, a mock trial, brutal scourging, a condemnation to die, shuffling back and forth between government officials. This is what they did with Jesus. And then a severe beating, leaving him more dead than alive. A public cry for an executioner to come. And they said, give us Barabbas and not Jesus. Then Jesus robed in purple, plated with a crown of thorns, two inch thorns jammed into his head. Amidst the howling mob, he is forced to carry a 130 to 150 pound beam upon his beaten back, approximately a thousand steps. I've never been there, Pastor. I know you have. And it's a rise to Golgotha. And there Jesus is nailed, hand and feet, and dropped into a holding pattern between heaven and earth to suffer and die. Then you think about what followed. He's thrust with a spear to which water and blood flowed out. And now he's dead. He says, Father, into thy hands commend my spirit. His body is taken down by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, I believe, according to John 19. And he's taken off that cross and wrapped in fine linen and laid into a tomb where no man had laid. It was for Joseph's personal burial. And so Joseph loaned his grave to Jesus. But they put him in that tomb and two astounding things were done, folks. First of all, it was sealed with a Roman seal. Now, far as I know, to keep a body in a grave, this had never been done before. Think about the significance of that, the seal. In other words, it was sealed, it was closed, it was, it was uh, uh, wrapped, if you will, uh, 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 sealed with a Roman seal. The personal seal of the Roman government said, do not open. And then, not only was it sealed with a Roman seal, it was stationed by a Roman guard. A Roman guard of men, anywhere from 12 to 24 men, stood security over a dead man. Would you just think about that? We can only understand that either man took him out of the grave or God took him out of the grave, folks, because he came out of the grave. And it's clear that no man could have taken him. With a Roman guard and a Roman seal, there's no way somebody could have broken through that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's absolute. He rose from the dead. He walked out of his own grave. And Jesus appeared to his disciples three different times. 
The Bible says that he ate with them. Listen, you study your Bible. It's here. It's here. He ate with them. He was touched by them. He said, he said, look at me. I have flesh and bone. He didn't use the word blood. He said, I have flesh and bone. He said, see me. He said, reach hither thy finger, Thomas. Thomas. And I want to tell you something. I think Jesus pressed the point. He said, Thomas, reach hither thy hand. Open wound. You say, why, why would Jesus do that? His wounds are a significant testimony of his remarkable work. That, love that song. That song that uh, I believe the old happy Goodmans used to sing. The only thing there that's been made by man are the scars in the hands of Jesus. Oh, his wounds his wounds testify. He revealed his wounds on three occasions, by the way. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 6, he was seen by 500 people at one time. And I want to say to you, there are more witnesses, according to the Bible, there are more witnesses to the resurrection than there were to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. His resurrection, his work is remarkable. Think about not only the biblical evidence of what he did in, in his resurrection. But could I say to you, think about the evidence of the remarkable work of God's grace in our lives. You all, some of you might know Rich Zavatsky. Pastor Rich, he's called. He wasn't Pastor Rich when he came to our church. He was that guy with the long hair. He was greeted by one of my deacons and Brother Chuck Brewer met him. He said, welcome young feller. <laughs> and he came in with a life full of sin and awful sin. Richard was a, uh, a patent, uh, typical young man who didn't have God in his life. But he got saved the second time he came. My, what a change took place in his life. Just like your life, same thing. Some to greater evidence than others, but ultimately the same change. What a change Jesus has brought in our lives. I was witnessing to his atheist father, Richard's atheist father, Mr. Zavatsky, and a good man, a Polish man, immigrant from, from Poland. Very hard, hard man. Hard life. Lived a hard life. And he said, I witnessed to him five different times. Your pastor had the privilege of leading him to the Lord on his deathbed. But I witnessed to him five different times. And uh, I remember at one of those times, I said to him, I said, Mr. Zavatsky, I said, I want to leave you with this thought. As you just told me that you don't believe that there has to be a God. There's a difference between an atheist and an agnostic. But he claimed that he doesn't believe that there is a God. And then he kind of modified it and said, sounded more agnostic than atheist, but nevertheless, I said, Mr. Zavosky, you have to come to grips with this startling reality. How do you reckon, how do you explain the incredible change in the life of your son. And I remember he stood up straight. He said, I can't explain that. And I want to tell you something, that worked on his heart. And that worked on his heart. And I'm glad to tell you that even in his last breath, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Think about the changed lives all around us today. Think about the vicious enemy of Christ, Saul, who later became Paul. How did that happen? The resurrected Christ. He met the Lord. How about you? Have you met the Lord? Then let me close with this. The resurrection, it proves that his words are reliable. 
It proves that his work is remarkable. Then let me say finally, the resurrection proves the way of Christ is eternal. The way of Christ is eternal. That's seen in our text in verse number 20, where he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. His way is eternal. The very fact of a resurrection makes eternity real. You are a living soul and you will be somewhere forever. You see, the grave is just a, the city of the dead. And someone said, we're all in the land of the living. Oh no, we're in the land of the dying. We're marching to the tomb. And thank God this is not the end of it. Thank God. One night, little Eddie had a dream about heaven. And in the dream, he stood in a great crowd outside the gates. Near him stood his father and his mother and his little sisters. An angel was calling their names from the Lamb's book of life. Presently, the angel called William Neighbor Webster, a William Webster neighbor. Little Eddie's father answered, said, here I am. And he started through the gate. Eddie took his father's hand and said, Daddy, let me go with you. And his father said, no, little Eddie boy, you must wait until your name is called. You cannot go in on my name. Soon, Julia Marie Neighbor was called. Little Eddie's mother answered, here am I. Eddie cried, oh, mother, let me go with you. Oh, no, Eddie, you cannot go in with your mother. You must hear your own name called. Then his sister's names were called, and on they went in through the pearly gate. And how sad and anxious little Eddie was until he heard it. Robert Eddie Neighbor. And with a great shout, he said, Here I am! Here I am! And on through the gate he went. One day you're going to hear your name called. And we'll say, Here I am. Because of the blood of that precious lamb, I enter heaven. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your resurrection proves to us that your word is reliable. Your work is remarkable and your way eternal. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. On this Easter Sunday morning, we do not hasten in the invitation, but I do want to give you opportunity to come before the Lord in this solemn hour and say, Lord Jesus, I offer you myself again. Pianist, please begin to play. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and eyes closed. I wonder today, do you know for sure that you're saved? Can you say, yes, my name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know your name will be called? Maybe you're not sure. He loves you today. Preacher, pray for me. I'm not saved and I don't know that my name will be called. Is anyone like that? Let me pray for you. Otherwise, would you come? Come pray for your children today, your grandchildren. Don't stop praying for your loved ones to love Jesus. Hold closely to his hand. Walk hand in hand. Oh, would God stir our hearts again about our families? 
but our personal walk with the Lord. Maybe today you need to say, Jesus, I want to have just a closer walk with you. A closer walk with you. Father, we thank you for speaking to our hearts. Bless these as they pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Stay as long as you need. No hurry. I'm going to turn it over to the pastor. We're right on time. God bless you today, church. Thank you for listening so well. Thank God that he is alive today. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.